There's no point to having October if there's no new Stranger Things. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Grab your Bibles. We are starting a brand new series tonight. If you don't have a Bible with you, we got them on the back tables, um, and you can grab them. We've also got the scriptures up on the PowerPoint, so you can pay attention that way. Uh, but we are starting a brand new series tonight that I hope is interesting to you and intriguing. Um, we're going to jump around the Bible a bit in this series, but this is um, a series about a topic that is always important, especially uh, when you're in youth ministry. It's something that I, um, I tried to teach regularly in middle school. It's something we try to teach regularly in high school. But even more than just youth ministry, this is a topic that is just in the news a lot. Um, our series is going to be called Who's in Charge? And you can't read it. It's really little out there. It says the battle for authority. Authority. Authority is a big deal, and it, it's a hot-button topic anymore, depending on what, what context it in, is in. So you have authority in the context of government, in the context of uh, law enforcement. You have it in the context of religion. You have, I mean, all the way down to the practical aspect of parenting and whatnot. Authority is a big deal, and it's the essence of the issue is who is in charge? Who's the boss? And who said so? If someone's in charge and someone's the boss, who put them there and who says that they get the power? And that is a very natural thing for you to start to think when you're a teenager or, you know, coming through middle school or high school, you start to test those authority boundaries. And if you have good godly parents like I had when I was a kid, when you test those authorities, you get a good swift kick or not, just a, a, a swat, right? Yeah, a swat on the, on the behind that teaches you where the authority derives from, but a lot of people don't have that nowadays. I think the thing that boggles my mind, though, is, and, and I don't think, Corey has a better memory than me, um, but I feel like it's like the last five years or so that this whole, like, disrespect the cops thing became really, like, trendy. Like, like it's never, like, like, there's always been this idea that the government is out to get you and all this stuff. I get that. But, like, with the onset of social media and viral sensations, like, there, there's just this, this tr it's trendy to look down on law enforcement officers, and the excuse given, and I, I promise this isn't just going to be a soapbox night, I promise. It's, I'm getting somewhere, so bear with me. What the issue is, and the excuse that's given to disrespect all law enforcement officers is that some of them are bad. What, that's fair. That's, yeah, there, there are some bad ones. But is it fair to say because that some are bad that we should disrespect all law enforcement officers? If it is, then who's in charge? See, who enforces the rules if we aren't to respect those people? All right, let's back up a little bit. Let's zoom out a little bit. Forget about the people who enforce the rules. Forget about those guys. They're just the middleman anyway. Forget about those guys. Who determines the rules? Who makes the rules? And you might say the government. That's the easy answer. Okay. Well, why? Who says? I mean, let's just question authority in, in the biggest realm possible. Let's be as punk rock as we can. Let's question all authority, anarchy, and chaos right now. Who makes the rules? The government. Why? Who says so? It's very trendy nowadays. It always is, but the internet, and I, I know you guys don't remember a time before social media and the internet, but it, it's, it, that makes me sound really old, but it wasn't that long ago that you didn't have things going viral on the internet, and it's always been a thing to question authority. It always has been. You can go back and you can just, you know, look at the 70s and 80s, of course, but this, it's trendy to not trust anything that your government tells you because, again, some of them are bad. Well, is that fair? 
Because if it is, then who's in charge? See where I'm getting at? If you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater every time, then it leaves you with the question, which is my title for the series, who's in charge? Who's in charge? If we're going to have order in life and in society, who's in charge? Okay, all of that is big picture stuff. Let's zoom in a little bit. Let's make it practical. If the, gover- if the government can't tell me what to do, and cops can't tell me what to do, and X, Y, Z, well, then who really cares what my parents think? Why should I obey my parents? If I don't care about the government, if I don't care about cops, I don't care about law enforcement, I don't care about the, why then should I care about what my parents think? Why should I have to do what they tell me to do? See how this starts in the big picture? Very abstract and then makes it all the way home. And it starts to affect how you think about everything. Authority is a huge friggin' deal. It really is. And uncertainty on this issue of authority, what it's doing is it's plunging America and just humanity in general, but especially us here at home, into anarchy in the name of freedom. Freedom to do what I want. Freedom to choose to do what I want. There's nobody can tell me what to do. It's my body. It's my rights. It's my this. It's my that. You're not my authority. You can't tell me what to do. It's not freedom. That's anarchy. If there's no rules, who's in charge? Why is authority such a big deal? Well, let me give you a spoiler for the series, especially for tonight. Everyone wants to be their own authority. That's what it comes down to. That's the spoiler. That's the secret. Everyone wants to be their own authority. And I want to give you guys a little bit of a hint, and this is where I'm heading. It's going to intro what we're talking about tonight and intro the entire series. This is a very common thing uh, that is taught nowadays, especially once you get out of high school and into college, but definitely at the high school level, is called relativism. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of relativism, even if you don't know what it is, but you've heard of it. Okay, a few of you. Relativism just means things are relative. That's pretty easy, right? You can't nail anything down. Nothing is standard. Nothing is absolute. And so what it refers to in relativism is typically relative truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relative. There's no such thing as absolute morals or ethics. Morality is relative. Ethics are relative. Okay, that's a very common way of thinking. That's a very common worldview nowadays. If you haven't run by that, you will someday. It's okay. Just know about it. Well, here's the problem with relativism that says there's no absolute truth, no absolute morality. It's all relative. The problem is that if you say the statement all truth is relative, is that true? Because if it is, then that's actually wrong sometimes. And, okay, can you think about that for a second with me? If I tell you all truth is relative, and you're like, is that true? Uh, well, it's, it's relative. Yeah, exactly. It's, I don't know. So it's actually false sometimes. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even hold its own water. But let's take it to the practical side of it. Forget about the rhetoric side of it, which is the fun part, in my opinion. But let's talk about practical side. If truth is relative, if morals are relative, nothing is standard, there's no absolute. Relative to what? Right? Relative to whom? That's the question. And I want to give you one of my favorite examples. I've used this example before. Maybe, maybe you haven't heard it. But if truth, if morality, if all of that is relative, there's no absolute. There's a man whose name was Jeffrey Dahmer. Anyone ever hear of old Jeffrey Dahmer? Okay. Do you know what Jeffrey Dahmer did? Jeffrey Dahmer was convicted 
and guilty of killing and eating 17 young men and boys between the years of 1978 and 1991. This is a really morbid illustration. I get it. It's a really extreme illustration. But here's what I want to tell you. If truth and morality is relative, why did Jeffrey Dahmer go to jail? Why is Jeffrey Dahmer in trouble? If morals and truth is relative, then was he wrong? I actually want to share a quote with you. I don't know. Is it on the PowerPoint? I didn't see the PowerPoint before I got here. Is my Dahmer quote on the PowerPoint? No. Don't worry about it if it isn't. Okay. I'll read it to you. This is what Jeffrey Dahmer said in trial. He says, if a person doesn't think there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within an acceptable range? That's how I thought anyway. I always believe the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from slime. When we die, you know, that's it. There's nothing. Now, this isn't a soapbox against evolution, but you see what he's getting at? If I'm not accountable to God, then who's in charge? You guys? Says who? I thought it was right to do what I did. If morals and truth is relative, that's an extreme example, but that is where that ends up. That line of thinking, that there's no absolute truth. And the reason why it happens is because everyone gets their feelings hurt when someone says you're wrong. Well, I'm not wrong. The truth is just relative. See? This is what's been happening the last 10 to 20 years. And it's starting to get so ridiculous that what it has done, and here is where we're getting to, is what, you, you might ask, why are we talking about truth and morality? Here's the thing. You take 20 to 30 years of truth and morality becoming relative, and there's no standard, and there's no accountability, and there's no absolutes. You know what happens? The world's view on authority gets all jacked up. Who's in charge? Who decides, you know who's in charge? Whoever decides what truth is. And so people fight, and they go to war, and they, they go to elections, and they rig elections. Do, they do all this stuff to be the person who is in charge, who makes the rules. But I thought rules were relative. See, that's the thing. That's where it all comes from. There's a guy named Kent Hovind. You don't really need to know who he is, but he said this. He said, there must be an absolute if there are to be morals. And there must be an absolute if there are to be real values. If there's no absolute behind, beyond man's ideas, then there's no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. You're merely left with conflicting opinions. Who's right, who's wrong, if nobody's right and nobody's wrong? See? Who's in charge? See, and here's where we start to get into what we're going to be talking about tonight. If there's a God, which of course the answer to that question is yes, but if there is a God, if there is a creator, then he is the ultimate absolute standard for truth, right? If he made it all, well then he's the one in charge. That means that he is the boss. That means that whatever he has to say about authority and about truth and about morals is the standard. It is the absolute. It is the ultimate authority. So what does he say? Well, that's what we're going to get to tonight. And that's why we study the Bible about everything in life, but especially about something as important as truth and authority. And our springboard for this study is going to be Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. We're going to see these verses every week, but they, they are a great springboard for tonight. Because I want you guys to see, if you, if you never thought that the Bible had anything to say about authority, or even something as simple and practical as government. I'm telling you, you're going to learn a lot this month. The Bible has everything to say about that because God is the one who instituted it. He invented it. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. 
the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, you don't have to get all wonky about that word damnation. It doesn't say eternal there. Damnation just comes from the word condemnation. If, if you resist the power that's in charge, i.e. break the law, what do you get? Condemned. That's what he's saying. You resist the power, you're going to be condemned for it. And by the way, like verses 1 and 2 say, if God is the one who ordained the power, when you resist that power, do whatever you want, break the law, whatever, you're ultimately breaking God's law because he put it in place. That's the idea of these verses. Last week, we did a study on Psalm 119. If you were here, you remember we talked about God's word. We saw David's love for God's word. We saw um, some of the functions of God's word. We saw some of the results and the fruits of God's word in us, if we actually let it get in us. And tonight, I want to prove to you that God's word is the final and ultimate and absolute standard for authority in the world today. In the universe, really. God's word is the ultimate and final standard. And everything else we talk about in the next couple of weeks are going to come under the umbrella of that God's word is the absolute standard for authority. We don't believe truth is relative. We don't believe morals are relative. We don't believe authority is relative. We believe that God is the absolute standard of everything, and his word gives us the standard for truth, morality, ethics, authority, all of those things. And so if we establish that tonight, then this series is going to make absolute sense because we're going to establish that God's word is the authority. And so whatever God's word says goes because he's the boss. He's in charge. So if we're going to do that, we need to back up a little bit. So we're going to start at a wider angle and we're going to just start with God. Number one, look at the authority of God. We'll back up a little bit from his word and just look at God himself. Now, I know we're in church. I, don't, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'll say it anyway. We're, we're going to tackle this from the worldview of that God exists because this is church. If your worldview is influenced by an atheistic or a humanistic ideal, that, okay, that's fine, but you just have to understand you have no final authority, right? That, that's the idea. If somebody is an atheist or a humanist or whateverist or a relativist, they don't have an authority. The, the final authority that they have is themselves, that's the key. The, remember the spoiler I gave you earlier that everybody wants to be their own final authority? That's where relativism and humanism and atheism leads. I am in charge. That's the idea. I'm in charge. I make my own rules. I do what I want. Well, this is problematic practically. We've already seen that from Jeffrey Dahmer's quote. What about when somebody wants to eat people? Well, you can't do that. Only nice people can make the rules well, who's nice? Who's in charge? Do you see? It doesn't make sense. It's cyclical. You can't make this kind of an argument, but this is what the world does all the time, and it messes up the minds of young people so that they grow up questioning everything that their authority has to tell them on the basis of, you're in charge. And that's not how God designed it. If there's no God, who determines what's right and wrong? If it's the courts, why? Who gave them that power? There has to be an original possessor of power and authority that it was given to other people, other establishments. We're going to start with this assumption that God exists because this is a church. God exists. Tonight's not the night to defend that is God real. If you want to have that conversation later or you're not sure or you're questioning, please come talk to me. I won't make fun of you. It's okay. 
We all go through times where we're doubting. Or if, or if you're new and that's something you've never been sure of, come talk to me. That's not what the message is about tonight. But Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created. So that means that he is the creator. That means he has ultimate say, ultimate jurisdiction on authority of the creation. It's just how it is. When Christ was on the earth, and we'll get to Jesus in a little bit, he had control over the storms. Remember when he walks on the, on the water, he gets in the boat and he tells them with his words to stop and his authority of his words makes the oceans, makes creation stop. God as creator has the final authority over his creation. That just makes sense. It's good logic. So you have the story of Job. Who remembers Job? You know good old Job? Job was a good guy. The Bible says he was righteous. He was a good guy, and uh, one time, I don't even know how this works, but the Bible tells us this in Job 1 and 2, that apparently Satan was talking to God one day. I don't even know how that happens, but he was. And it says that God was like, hey, uh, have you seen my boy Job over there? He's a pretty good guy, isn't he? Kind of bragging on his boy Job. Satan says he's only good because you give him whatever he wants. He's got a good family. He's got riches. He's got good health. Let me take all that stuff away and see if he still cares. God says, okay. And Job didn't know. <laughs> they didn't let Job know about this deal they had, but in that the rest of the book of Job is about Job's suffering. Long story short, Job, his family's taken away. All his kids die. He's struck with boils and nasty sores all over his body. His wife starts to hate him. He loses everything, all his cattle, all his stuff. He loses everything in the, in the matter of a couple days. And so he's sitting there for a while. His friends come and they talk to him and they're really bad at advice and counseling. But nevertheless, by the end of the book of Job, Job has never sinned with his mouth, but he's starting to get a little frustrated as you could probably imagine you would. <laughs> if in the matter of a couple days, you lost everything and then your so-called friends came and said, well, there must be sin in your life. He's starting to get a little testy. God comes on the scene and he talks to him and he says, okay, Job, let me tell you something about who I am. Check this out. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you? He's going to ask him some rhetorical questions. Job, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? I'm the creator, right? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? You can keep reading through that chapter. And God's just going to ask rhetorical question after rhetorical question saying, Job, who are you to complain about anything that I do or say can happen? I'm God. <laughs> I created everything. And he wasn't even doing that to just be a jerk. He was just trying to get Job to get the perspective down of you don't understand anything that's going on in the background. And Job does. He gets over it and he's like, yeah, you're right, God. I'm sorry. Isaiah 45, 18 gives us the question to those rhetorical questions. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. God says, I'm the creator. I made it. I say what goes. He's in charge. This is the God who is the supreme authority over all of his creation, including you and me. And so Romans 13, 1 tells us that what he does is give some of his authority to certain people. Why? I don't know. But it says that he does. The powers that be are ordained of God. So God, by default, as the creator, is the authority over all of creation. And he has designated some authority to those below him. That's a common thing. It's a common thing. 
I have authority in Ignite. I have counselors who help lead, and I divvy up responsibility and authority to them just as much as Jeff is the lead pastor of our church, and he divvies up authority below him just as much as in your family. There's a hierarchy of authority. And when people submit to authority, things work the way they're supposed to work. That's how God made it, because he is the ultimate authority. Number two, we saw the authority of God. Now let's see the authority of God's son. This is very simplistic, but it's very important because we're building a case for why you should submit to God's word as the ultimate authority, not just some old book that we read on Sundays. The authority of God's son. What's God's son's name? Anybody? You're taking an awful long time on this one. Yell it out. Jesus. It's not a trick question, Sarah. It's Jesus. He is God's son. Maybe we, do we need to stop and take a break and just talk about Jesus for a second? You guys, okay. Jesus is God's son. That's important to know. It's also important to know, and you should know this already, but we're gonna go through it. Jesus is not only God's son, he is equal with God because he is God. It's called the Trinity. We'll see that in a second. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three separate individual parts, yet one God. How does that work? I don't know. But the Bible says that I'm three and yet one. I'm a flesh, I'm a body, and I'm a soul. I'm a flesh, I'm a soul, I'm a spirit. That didn't make sense. Flesh, soul, and spirit. Three parts, yet one person. How does it work? I don't know. That's what God's word says, though. See how easy it is when God's word is your authority that you just submit to it by faith? You don't have to understand everything. You just believe it because God's the creator. Some people are just too smart for that, though. God is equal with the Son, with Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Philippians chapter 2 talks about how Christ came to the earth. And it says that he was in the form of God, because he is God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Well, Jesus didn't think he was stealing anything from God to claim equality with him because he wasn't stealing anything. He was God. We see that in 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The Word, if you don't know that, is Jesus. When Jesus is on the earth in the form of a human, he's called Jesus Christ. When he's not on the earth and he's in heaven, he's called the Word, capital W, Word of God. Jesus, the word, is equal with the Father. Jesus even says this himself when he's on the earth in the Gospels, John chapter 10. He says to the Pharisees and to the people around him who are doubting, he says, I and my Father are one. And if you know anything about what happens after that verse, they try to stone him to death for claiming equality with God. But he wasn't stealing anything. It wasn't robbery because he was God. Jesus is equal with the Father. So because of that, the whole point of that is that he has the same authority as God. Because Jesus is God, he is the creator, so he has the same authority. And people recognized it when he was on the earth. Mark chapter 1, they were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. For he taught them as one that had authority. Not as the scribes, not as the other guys. This guy has authority. They were astonished at his teaching. Because he taught with authority, the authority of God, the creator. And that authority gave him the ability to do miraculous things. Mark 1.27, they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he the unclean spirits, 
and they do obey him. Jesus was casting out devils, and they couldn't believe it. They're like, he is, he's not just working some black magic. No, he is commanding with authority the unclean spirits. Who is this guy? He's God. He's the son of God, and he has God's authority. In fact, Christ has so much authority that he is able to defeat death and hell and sin and save us from our sins, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Not a whole lot of wiggle room for relativism there, is there? How many options you got? Well, it's all relative. No, no, no. Jesus wasn't saying anything was relative. He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth. Relative truth? No, 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 there's one. It's me. And the life. And no one gets to the Father but by me, Jesus says. Jesus was pretty narrow-minded. No room for relativism. But he had the authority of God the Father because he is not only the Son, he is equal with God the Father. Okay, we're building a case. You still following? Good. Number three, the authority of God's name. That's kind of weird. You probably thought we were going to go to the Holy Spirit, right? Well, the Holy Spirit is also God, so same study. Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, God is God. They're all God. They're all creator. They are all authoritative, of course. But let's look at the authority of God's name. This is an interesting thing in the Bible. God has many names in the Bible, but they all have one thing in common. God's names are higher than anybody else's name. God's name has authority all on its own. It has its own authority. It's kind of like if you were to take the president, and if you don't like the current one, pick your favorite. I don't give a crap. Pick your favorite president, and if somebody said, they went to you and said, hey, do this thing, and you're like, I ain't doing that. And they said, well, I have it in writing from the president. That name carries some authority. Names carry authority, and God's name has more authority than any other name. Check out this in Exodus chapter 3. Who knows the story of Moses? I, I, we are hitting all the classics tonight. Moses, good job. I should have had the flannel graph out and everything. That would have been awesome. Moses. Okay, so Moses spends 40 years on the backside of a desert as a shepherd because he killed a guy in Egypt. He got a little antsy. Uh, he wanted to rescue the people. He wanted to rescue the Israelites who were in bondage, but he did it before God told him what to do, and so he had to run for his life. He spends 40 years on the backside of a desert as a shepherd, and he's walking across the desert one day, and he looks over, and he sees a bush that's on fire. Probably not that uncommon in the desert, but this one's weird because this bush is just burning. It's not going away. It's not turning to ash. It just keeps burning. The bush wasn't consumed. So he turns and he starts talking to the bush, and it turns out that it's God. You know, the whole thing, he says, take off your shoes because the, the ground that you stand on is holy ground. So he's talking to God, and God says, I want you to go back and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, you've got the wrong guy. I can't do that. I, I, seriously, man, you've got the wrong person. I'm bad at talking. I'm just, I'm not smooth. There's probably better people to do this. Okay, so he's going through all these excuses. And in verse 13, Moses said unto God, this is like excuse number 10. Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? <laughs> He's really running at the bottom of the barrel now, saying, well, what about when I get there and I tell them God wants me to lead you out, and they ask what your name is? What am I going to say? God? He's like, well, yeah. Look at verse 14. God said unto Moses, all caps. You know, God ain't playing when it's all caps. I am that I am. 
And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. <laughs> One of God's names is I am. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you probably, I don't know if you've heard old songs that maybe we sang way back in the day before you were born at church. And you've, there's songs all about the great I am and stuff. I am is literally one of the names of God. That's how awesome he is. He is I am. Why do I talk about that? Okay, Jesus is equal with God, right? When Jesus was on the earth, John chapter 18, Judas was getting ready to betray him. Remember Judas, not a good guy. Sells Christ out for some silver. Check this story out. Judas received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees and they come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were going to take Jesus. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, What's he say? I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, why do you suppose that is? Do you think it's just because there was a random earthquake all of a sudden they felt? No. Jesus said the name of God, I am he. He kind of set him up a little bit. He said, who are, who are you looking for? And he said, well, that's me. I am that guy. And when he said the name of God, the absolute authority of creator God pushed them back on their butts. That's the authority that the name of God carries the name of God is powerful in fact in Philippians chapter 2 we see that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow to it of things in heaven of things in earth and things under the earth and someday every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father someday it's the name of God the name of Jesus Christ that every knee is going to bow to every relative tongue will confess to that he is the God he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have the authority of God. We have the authority of Christ. We have the authority of his name. All of that then leads us to the authority of God's word. Why did we go through all that? We haven't even really talked about God's word. We've got about five or ten minutes left. This whole message is called the authority of God's word, and we're just now getting to it. Why would we do that? Well, we're building a case. A case for why God's word is the authority. God's word is the Bible, right? Why is it called God's word? Because the Bible literally contains the words of God written down that God spoke. How powerful is God's word, his words? Man, think about this. How did Genesis 1 say that God created the heavens and the earth? How, how did God create everything? He used words. God spoke. Go back and read it tonight. Genesis chapter one. God spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be this. God said, let there be that. God spoke it into existence. When God created man, he breathed into him the breath of life, breathed into him life. It's God's words that create. God's words are the things that actually deliver the authority that God has. So if God the creator is the ultimate authority, it is his very words that deliver and tell us what he says, that's important because we have the very words of God. God's word is incredibly powerful. It has a lot of authority. How much? 
Well, Psalm 138, verse 2, this is part of the reason I want you to see the authority of his name. It says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God has magnified. Magnified means elevated. God has elevated his word above his name. That name that every tongue will confess to and every knee will bow down to, that name that has the power to cast people on their behinds, that name that is Jesus Christ, that is God, that is the I am, his word is magnified above his name. Even, think about this, even God has to obey his own word. We can, we don't have to obey our own word because we're liars, right? If you don't obey what you say, if you don't do what you say you do, it makes you a hypocrite. You're a liar. But what if God did that? He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be perfect. He wouldn't be holy. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that God can't lie. So even God has to do everything that his word says. That's how authoritative God's word is. God says that obeying his words is proof that you love him. Authority, obedience. John 14, 15, if ye love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Authority, demonstrate that you love me by submitting to my authority. If you hear God's word and obey it, you're blessed. Luke eleven twenty eight. he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and what? Keep it, obey it, submit to it as their authority. Not only is it good for you, not only does it prove you love God, you'll be blessed for it. And ultimately, it's through God's word that anyone receives Christ. Romans 10, 17 says that so then faith cometh by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing by the word of God. You can't even get saved if you don't hear God's words. God's words not only carry authority, they carry eternal life. So what I'm, the whole point of tonight was to build to you the, the proposition that God's word is absolutely the infallible standard of truth and authority in the world, in the universe. And if you can get that, teenager, I'm trying to help you with the Bible, trying to protect you when you go out in the world someday. Not trying to make you scared of college or the, the real world. I'm not. I'm just trying to get you to understand how the world thinks. The world wants you to believe that you're the boss, that you're in charge. You know who wants you to believe that? Satan wants you to believe that. If you don't believe me, go back and read Genesis chapter 3 when he tells Eve, as she's about to eat of the fruit, that God told her, not authority, not to, he says, well, you'll be as gods. You'll be in charge if you eat that fruit. Satan would love to get you to think that you're the one who's in charge. God's the one who's in charge. God's word is in charge. God's word is perfect. Proverbs chapter 30 says that every word is pure and it is an authority that you can base your entire life around. Why? Well, I, I want to leave you with these two verses tonight. They're verses I talk about frequently. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, give us four functions, four purposes for the word of God. And they're all authority-based. If you'll submit to God's word, kind of like we saw last week, these are the things that can happen in your life. Scripture has four purposes. Look at verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for some things. It has some purposeful things. It's for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, 
truly furnished unto all good works. You know what those four words mean? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The scripture gives us four purposes. Number one, teaching you what's right. That's doctrine. What's right? Well, truth is relative. Morals are relative. Well, then how do I know what's right? The Bible is the standard. He tells you what's right. The Bible is pr- profitable for doctrine. It's, it's profitable for reproof. That's showing you what's wrong. <laughs> reproof. If your parents have ever reproved you, they have told you what you did wrong. That's what it means. The Bible, as the absolute standard of truth and authority, will tell you what is right and what is wrong. Number three, it's profitable for correction. Ah, who's ever been corrected for their bad works before? Yes, that is showing you how to get right. (laughs) God will correct you just as a loving parent would correct you because they want what's best for you. And then number four, for instruction in righteousness. That's how to stay right. It's how to live right. The Bible doesn't only tell you what's right and wrong. Man, it gets practical. It tells you how to get right. It tells you how to stay right. Because every person who's born into this earth is born in a wrong state, right? Against God. Built up in our sin. Separated from God because of our sin. So the Bible says, hey, guess what? This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Oh, well, if this is what's right and this is what's wrong, if that's the standard, well, then I, I fall short. God says you're right. But he doesn't leave you hanging. He says, this is how you get right. Let me give you the gospel. Let me show you how to get right. Let me show you how to get clean. Let me show, show you Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a man, young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. He doesn't leave you hanging by telling you what's right and what's wrong. He shows you how to get right. And then he shows you how to live right, how to stay right how to stay in the paths of righteousness. What's the common theme of all those? It's authority. If God's word isn't the authority, the supreme absolute authority, then with what weight can it actually tell you what is right and what is wrong, right? If God's word is not the authority, then why is he trying to tell me what's right and what's wrong? I determine what's right and what's wrong. See that? That's why the world is against God's word. Because God's word is the authority. Man, in our natural sinful state, wants to be our own authority. And so when God's word says, no, 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 I'm the authority, man pushes back and says, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't even believe in God, but I'm very mad at you. Okay, Mr. Atheist. That makes sense, right? The standard for truth and authority is the word of God. So, it only makes sense to determine what authority is that we should study what God's word says, right? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. And what we're gonna see in Romans 13, along with some other passages, is that God designates, he distributes his authority to different people. He has this hierarchy of authority that has been ordained by God. We're gonna see that in the rest of the series. I'll give you some spoilers. We're gonna talk about parents. That'll be a fun one, right? (laughs) I gotta get some brownie points with your parents. God ordains the parents as the authority in your life. Parents. He ordains the church as an authority in your life and he even ordains the government. We're gonna spend a week talking about government. That's what God has to talk about in his word. God has set up authority because he's the ultimate authority. And so if we, here's the easy thing that I want you to take away from tonight for the rest of the series. If God's word, if God is the authority and God's word is the authority, then we just need to submit to whatever it says. And if you disagree, okay. But just know, 
God's in charge. <laughs> He's the boss. You can disagree, but it's kind of like when you're five years old and you disagree with your mom and dad. Who cares what you think, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you could go out and, and mom and dad could say, hey, go up, go up, go to bed. It's time to go to bed. And you say, nope, I disagree. <laughs> okay, well, you're going to get your butt swat, right? It doesn't matter what you think. I'm in charge. That's the, that's the entire point. God is the authority. Now, some of you might think, I don't know. Or someone listening to this might think, well, that's not right. Parents shouldn't have that kind of authority. Ah, you don't have a right perspective on God and his authority. Because if you have a right perspective on God and his authority, you'll understand the authority that God has given to parents. And you know, there's some of you guys in here who are 17, 18 years old, <laughs> stink you're gonna be graduating high school in a year or two getting married in a couple years having kids that's crazy and if you don't understand the authority of God the authority of God's word the authority of parents the authority of everything that God has set up your kids are gonna be friggin crazy just telling you man <laughs> you gotta understand God's authority because with every generation that passes that doesn't understand God's authority and doesn't submit to authority we have a anarchist world we have a world of anarchy in the name of freedom, in the name of relativism. But God's word is the authority, so we're gonna submit to it everything that it says, and we're gonna study it this month, so I hope that that's interesting to you. Let's pray. God, we come to you tonight, and Lord, I do thank you for your word. It doesn't always say things we like, but that's okay, because you're God, and you love us, and you want to see us do well. Your word tells us that you're like a loving father. You correct your sons for their own good, not because you like to see us in trouble. You correct us because you want to see us do well. And so, Father, when we come to your word and we see something that we don't like or something that doesn't sit well with us, Lord, show us why it's what we need to hear. Show us why it's what we need. Help us to be more like you. Help us to love you more. Help us to submit to you better, just like Christ said in the Gospels, that if we love you, we'll keep your commandments. God, I just pray that you would show us how. Show us how to walk in righteousness. Show us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right, and, and ultimately just show us how to submit to authority. Because if we'll submit to authority, whether that's you as God, whether it's to your word as God, or whether it's even just to our parents, we're gonna stand out from the rest of the world around us because the world around us wants to be their own boss. The world wants to be their own authority. And we'll stand out vastly different than the crowd if we'll simply just learn to submit to authority and life will be a little bit easier. We love you, and I pray that you'll teach us through the rest of this series, God. Be glorified in this last song that we sing. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.